This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Office of Personnel Management will look at how remote work could affect the way agencies offer and pay locality pay. The Associate Director for Employee Services at OPM, Rob Shriver, says the agency will have guidance on the locality pay issue in its first round of policy. FCW reports OPM officially defines telework and remote work differently, and that could affect the agency's guidance. The Energy Department will have a new Chief Information Officer soon. Ann Duncan will take the job, according to FedScoop. She was CIO at the Environmental Protection Agency in the Obama administration. Since 2017, she's been CIO of Santa Clara Santa Clara County, California, and CTO of state and local government for Dell. Matt Cutts is leaving the U.S. Digital Service after a four-year run. Cutts writes in his announcement blog post, he came to USDS in 2016 expecting to serve three to six months. Cutts writes USDS includes 180 staff and more than 500 alumni. Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency has a new work group for diversity, equity, and inclusion. The group will work to promote equity in oversight. Sandra Bruce is acting inspector general at the Department of Education. She is chair of the work group. Jay Lerner is IG at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. He's vice chair of the group. Folks, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Sandra, I start with you. What does that term mean, equity in oversight? I know it's not a definitive term, but what does that mean to you and your colleagues in the IG community? In the IG community, we look at equity as equitable access for all, uh, consistent and systemic, fair, just, and impartial treatment for all individuals. And that transcends to our oversight work because we want the public to serve that we serve to also understand that diversity, equity, inclusion is important to us. Jay, why is this important to you and your team, and, and how? what will the work group do to pursue the, the idea of equity and oversight? Right, and I think uh, following up on what Sandra said, it really boils down to the opportunities. And we've um, established the group in a way that would look at the internal operations of how OIGs operate within the IG community so that there are opportunities for folks to uh, step forward and to shine and make sure that there is that fairness, justice, and impartial treatment that, that Sandra said. It's something that we're gonna try to work on and develop new techniques and um, uh, make sure that it's incorporated into the community as a whole. Sandra, if anybody knows how to audit and investigate, it's a group of inspectors general. How will you take on this task? How will you use the tools and skills and abilities that the IG community has to look at this particular issue? So for the OIG community, this is actually something that we thought we feel like is really important. So while we know that we're getting started, we have some progress. We have some ways to go. So we've actually developing uh, a roadmap roadmap for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, as Jay mentioned about, that's going to focus on our people. 
Uh, we want to make sure that people are getting the right recruitment, development, retention, and advancement opportunities. And then we want to make sure that diversity, equity, inclusion is actually incorporated into our procurement and acquisition strategies and that the stakeholders and partners as it relates to oversight. We want all of this to transcend. We know that we also need to make sure that we have uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion competence, right? We are learning day by day. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's a journey. It's not a destination. So we need to make sure that we are trained up through speakers, videos, training. We're frequently communicating about it, making sure that we are um, amenable to having those um, difficult conversations. Um, that's what the OIG community is going to do to at least start. Jay, when this conversation started in government a long time ago, it focused primarily around the concept of diversity. Equity and inclusion have been added over time as awareness has kind of, as, as the spectrum, you used the term aperture earlier, as that aperture has widened and people understand more what the different terms mean and how they apply to doing business in the government every day. What exactly will you look at and how will you measure the success of this working group that you are hitting the marks that you want to hit in all three of those areas? Well, one, one project that we're working on, we've uh, issued a survey to the entire IG community uh, to take a look at how, um, what the diversity population is uh, throughout the community in large, medium, and small uh, OIGs, offices of inspectors general. And then that will set, establish a baseline. And then we can, uh, we're looking to establish a maturity model to see how it progresses over time, maybe from year to year, and to measure that progress. Um, part of that survey is uh, measuring the perception and the feelings of the OIG community. And we'll be able to gauge the progress over time to make sure that people are feeling included, have those opportunities, and that we have a diverse population. And it'll cover all those areas. Sandra, how will you read the results of that information? What Data obviously plays a huge role in what you and your fellow IGs do. How will you analyze that data, and then how will you take action on it? That's a great question, Francis. So as part of our roadmap for diversity, equity, inclusion, for every focus area, each group is responsible for coming up with metrics to help us measure. So when we take our um, survey that Jay just referenced, we are going to establish that as our baseline. And then each year, we'll actually look to see how that progress is being made. Each um, focus area that we've described here will demonstrate how each OIG can actually take whatever action they're taking, such as recruitment. Hey, let's look at the data and let's see if we are doing basic or are we at um, optimal. So we'll measure from the basic metrics that we've established in each of those uh, focus areas. Jay, when Sandra talks about looking at this data each year, this that implies to me this is not uh, a working group that you're standing up now and you're gonna shut it down at some point in time. This is something that it sounds like is perpetual, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. We, really, we've uh, focused on sustaining the effort, and we want to make sure it continues well, well into the future for the IG community and that it sticks um, within the community. Jay Lerner, Sandra Bruce, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time very much. Thank, Thank you, Francis. Up next, getting ahead of the modernization curve. Straight ahead on Government Matters, paying down your technical debt to set you up for success. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Biden administration would add more money to the Technology Modernization Fund if Congress passes appropriations that match the White House's budget request. Individual agencies would get more money, too. Tony Scott is CEO of the Tony Scott Group. He's former federal chief information officer. Tony, thanks for coming on the program. This budget request is interesting because of the big amounts of money it would boost at these agencies. Jim Giffer and Margie Graves were on the show on Sunday, and they both talked about technical debt as the first place agencies should look to spend any new money they get. Define that term for me, please, and explain what it means from a mission delivery perspective in an agency rather than just an IT nuts and bolts perspective, Tony. Sure, uh, happy to. Well, it can, the term technical debt can apply to a whole bunch of different things, actually. But um, in general terms, what it means is um, think of, think of you're having any kind of asset, whether it's a, a building or an automobile or um, an IT system, and you put it in service and it starts to atrophy over time. Um, if it's a building, you know, the roof wears out, the plumbing systems get uh, old, the electrical systems age, and at some point they need to be upgraded or replaced. Um, if you don't do that over some period of time, uh, you're incurring debt or you know physical debt or maintenance debt, if you will. And in the case of IT systems, this is exactly what happens. You fail to do upgrades, you don't keep the hardware current, uh, you don't patch operating systems, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen that begin to add up over time. And if left unaddressed, leave you with a, just like if you neglected it in a building, a crumbling asset or something that's, um, uh, you know, uh, deteriorating. So uh, that's, I think, what they were referring to. And in times of uh, you know budget crunches and so on, this is a thing that often gets neglected in uh, in IT is you forget about or you cut the easy things that are uh, easy to cut, which is this these maintenance activities. It also can mean when you're developing systems, uh, shortcuts that are taken in order to deliver on time. So, it may mean that you forget to do adequate documentation. You may um, do something down and dirty when the right thing would be to uh, take a little bit longer time and, and you know create something that's more uh, durable. In terms of mission delivery, the issue is all of these things begin to impact performance on how the agency can respond to customer needs how quickly they can adapt to new rules or regulations or changing conditions. And so um, at the end of the day, it makes you slower, less responsive, um, and may cost critical uh, dollars when you can least afford it. That's kind of the, I, I think, the bottom line of all of this. I like your building analogy. So to continue to use that in the case of a federal agency's technical plant, um, does 
taking money, if there is a spending increase or an appropriations increase, does taking that money just put a nice new roof back on that house to bring you back to that building, to bring you back to whole? Or is there an opportunity to address some other issue, add solar panels or something like that to actually increase performance and get ahead of the modernization curve? Well, it's a great uh, question, Francis. And I think the answer is it depends. But what I did in practice when I was in, um, uh, you know, in the private sector was I made sure that for every asset that we had in our portfolio, that we had assigned a useful life to it. Uh, it could be three years, five years, 10 years, didn't matter a lot. But what we did then was we made sure that we budgeted for the replacement of that thing at the end of its assigned useful life. And it was a great way of looking at the forward cost of systems that were in place today. Uh, and this was separate and, and apart from new development activities that needed to take place. So I think in you know federal agencies a lot, we think about new capabilities that we have to deliver. Um, and those are certainly important. There's no question about it. But we also have to budget and plan for the orderly replacement of the stuff that's there already. And in some cases, that may mean wholesale replacement. In other cases, it may just mean uh, an orderly upgrade. Uh, and I think so I think it depends a lot. But sometimes you can put solar panels on and that's a great solution. But um, quite often it means really rethinking you know, what that service is. Tony Scott, thanks very much for coming on the program. Great to have you. My pleasure. Great to see you. Up next, the biggest threat in the Arctic could be the changing landscape. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what a climate catastrophe could mean for national security. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. New satellite images show the Russian militaries refitting old Soviet bases in the Arctic and building new ones. One reason for the activities, the ice melt climate change is causing. Sharon Burke is senior advisor at New America. She's former assistant secretary of defense for operational energy plans and programs and writing in defense news about the Arctic. Sharon, you write this in this piece. Climate change means the Arctic is ultimately a geopolitical contest. No one's going to win, regardless of any investment in military materiel. Does that mean that we're thinking about the problem in the Arctic from a national security perspective the wrong way? I think we have to have a much more balanced perspective than we've had for the last few years, for sure. In that the reason, even if you look at all the strategies that the Pentagon has put out, it doesn't even mention climate change. It's like, it's magic that the ice is retreating, right? But if you don't take into account climate change in two ways, one is the, the way that it's a challenging environment with permafrost melt and you know changing weather patterns um, and factor that into what you're building or doing there, but also the longer term picture that if that becomes an entirely ice free region where it really is a blue Arctic as the Navy strategy says, that means that we're seeing catastrophic climate change and we've got bigger concerns. So I think we have to balance the near-term concerns about 
competition there with the longer term concerns about what climate change is going to do to the world. So two items from your comments there, Sharon. One is that the Biden administration has made it very clear that not just in national security, but all across its approach to every problem, it will consider the implications of climate change. So I wonder what that might mean for the theory of how we approach the Arctic. And the other is you mentioned all the strategies and you referenced those in your piece. Is that maybe part of the problem is that we have a bunch of strategies from a national security perspective and we don't have one? I agree with you on that. I think, I, I know, I definitely think that the joint force, that each part of the joint force is gonna have a different responsibility and a, and a different approach when it comes to an entirely new strategic frontier like the Arctic. But you have to have an uh, overarching vision for what's in the national interest and, and how we're going to approach it and how all those pieces fit together. And I don't think we have that now. Is it better then maybe that we don't have that now, given that, as you said, until now, we have not necessarily at least explicitly said climate change is potentially part of the problem that we have in the Arctic? Uh, that's a good way of looking at it, that, you know, that we kind of need a fresh start here. We need a, you know, a president that's going to be pragmatic about it. And being pragmatic doesn't just mean looking at what Russia's doing and reacting and jumping because Russia says jump. It means being realistic about the strategic competition and the military buildup and also about the environmental situation there and making your investments in both, you know, hard defense in materiel and also in soft defense in your alliances and in treaties and making those things together with that whole picture, not just the pieces of it. So to go back to my first question, then, what would you like to see happen regarding tying strategy and tying investments into this pragmatic approach if the theory is nobody's going to win there what does success look like and how do we tie the investments and strategy to achieving that success i think success there you know first of all one of the things that that without question is going to be success for us is if we really stick with our partners and allies i mean we have you know, uh, littoral nations there that are founding members of NATO, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, uh, these are our great strengths in the region and we're smart to invest in those relationships first and foremost. I think there are other things like uh, the law of the sea, which, you know, the United States has never ratified that put us at a terrible disadvantage in that region. We should be looking at all the cooperative mechanisms there the Arctic Council, whether we need some kind of new cooperative mechanism for security cooperation. You know, it, it, look at it this way. The Russians are building up and it's going to be hard for them, right? Because they have to deal with these changing conditions as well with the permafrost melt and the other things that will make it really hard for them to continue to build up and maintain these these positions. But the Chinese are doing it really differently. They are They are putting a strategic position in place that's multifaceted, that's about economics, that's about presence, that's about projection. We should be looking more at what the Chinese are doing than what the Russians are as far as what do we want. We shouldn't just be reacting and saying, okay, let's put a whole bunch of you know, iron in the water up there. Let's look at how we have a strategic position that then doesn't have a whole bunch of opportunity costs for dealing with climate change. I think what the Biden administration is doing now, which is they're hedging strategically with China but they're engaging on climate change is a really smart strategy for the Arctic. If we don't make progress on climate change, we lose there no matter what. Like whoever's gonna get access to rare earths will be irrelevant 
if we're looking at feet of sea level rise and you know extreme weather patterns all over the world. So let's do both. Let's protect our position there and let's advance our position on climate change. And you argue in this piece, Sharon, that that's exactly the case. Um, you write toward the end, um, the most important strategic gain in the high north is about cutting greenhouse gas emissions at home, working with other countries to do the same. That's not necessarily something that's easy to write into a national defense strategy, not capital letters, small letters, is it, Sharon? I, I, I don't think it's easy. No, you know what? I don't think it's that hard. I just think we haven't tried to do it yet, other than maybe a few, a few lines here and there acknowledging that there's an issue. But I think now uh, the Biden administration is pushing the pace on this with their executive orders, where they're, where they're saying we must incorporate it into national defense strategy. I think that scientifically, we've got plenty of good projections on what we think might happen, and we can incorporate those into how we look at our, our national security. I mean, it, it's it's fascinating. You know, before we did this interview, I was just looking at the headlines to see what the latest news was on the Arctic. And it's like, I mean, it's like a gladiator contest or something. It's like, you know, Comet is standing there saying, are you entertained? You know, half the articles are about competition in the north and green berets and magic cameras and oh my god we're all gonna fight there and then every now and then there'll be an article that's like you know a uh, killer freak winter storm in 2018 in europe directly geophysically tied to the melting ice in the arctic and terrible weird lightning storms across the arctic are killing people you know it's if we can't figure out a way to include both of those elements we're definitely going to be wasting our money and spending it on the wrong things. Sharon Burke, terrific insight as always. Great to have you back on the program. Great to be with you. You can find a link to that piece in Defense News at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. Get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, Act IAC's Acquisition Innovation 2021 is coming tomorrow. You'll learn firsthand how government and industry are working together to build adaptability, resilience, speed, and repeatability into the acquisition process. It's tomorrow, virtually, from 8 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit GovMatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. 
government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you, we got to talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were, uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services, and these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a a plan for transforming, and it didn't. Many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize, 
Uh, they're running their own networks today, every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the, the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting Obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work so managed service providers can then um, offer these services manage the networks manage the uh, security aspects of the networks manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband managed broadband and managed sd-wan Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.